This morning we are continuing our series going through the Gospel of Matthew, and this is the second uh, part of the two-part uh, sermon, I guess, uh, two-part message, or maybe two parts of the same passage from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us as we begin, though, as we uh, prepare to hear, and as I prepare to bring the word. Lord God, open up your word to us. Take its truth and not only show it to us, but bring us into it. Make it ours. Conform our hearts and our lives around it. We pray that Jesus would become more beautiful than he was before. More believable than he was before to us. We pray that we would see a, a more grand view of who you are, God, as a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, increase our faith here in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, this is God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side... A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years... And who had suffered much under, the, under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. 
for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Well, this is the second sermon here of two parts on this one passage, where we are looking at this passage here that Mark, uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has woven together for us. A larger story where the individual stories of these two females intersect in this particular moment when they both desperately needed Jesus. And one of them was a woman who had been unwell for 12 long years. Unwell due to a long-term menstrual bleed that left her weak and anemic. But not only unwell, she was also ritually unclean due to her bleed and as was given in the Levitical Old Testament law. And yet she still comes to Jesus and approaches him in her weakness. And in desperation, she reaches out to take hold of his garment with an understanding of him, though, that was also weak. It wasn't his garments that could save, but himself, Jesus himself who could save. And still Jesus stops along the way amid all the urgency and the hustle, even amid the fact that he was on an important errand for an important man. He stops here to give this anonymous woman the attention that she deserved. And then her understanding then of the Jesus who she needed was strengthened. Not his garments, but Jesus himself was the one that she needed and the one who healed her. So there's one, but then we have also this other female, a girl who died after 12 short years. The daughter of a man named Jairus whom we're told was a ruler in the synagogue, a man of considerable influence in the community because of his high position in the synagogue, when this was, after all, a religious society. And a girl, though, who is desperately sick. We don't know what her sickness was. We don't know how long it had been that she had suffered. But we do know that when we first hear of her, she is on her deathbed. And nothing could make her well. We have a desperate girl clinging to life, and a desperate father who is searching for hope. So last week when we read and when we heard the wider story of these events, we heard of two stories here of two individuals who had these whole backstories and histories and experiences behind, but behind them as each of them lived their own unique lives that are just as real as our lives are. And yet the two of them found their stories crossing in this brief moment on the road to Jairus' house. And last week we focused on the woman seeing this moment here from her perspective. But now we're going to look through the eyes of Jairus. What about him? What about his daughter? Well, it's not. It's a story of being unwell, but unwell all the way to death. Last year I read uh, an article in our local newspaper back when we were in California. It was this lengthy featured story about an older man named Ralph. And Ralph was known for his tenacity, he was known for his vigor, he was known for his brash personality. Uh, He had a quote in there, it's only bragging if you can't back it up. Uh, He was somewhat of an amateur regional sports legend in our area of Northern California. He was a prolific runner, even late into his life, and at one point he managed his own sports store. And it was a story told of a man who faced his challenges head-on throughout his whole life, and he was accustomed to winning through through the adversity just by pure grit. 
But as, is hap as what happens to so many outdoor athletes of a prior generation, Ralph developed severe skin cancer. So severe that it turned terminal very, very quickly. And the, re the remaining months of his life were painful as the cancer created open wounds. And so Ralph then was now fa faced with the inevitable that all of us face, no matter how strong or how tenacious we are. Death. And if he couldn't beat it, then he would deal with it on his own terms. The story wasn't about his cancer per se. The story was about his decision to undergo physician-assisted suicide to end his life, rather than to succumb to the slow death of his cancer, which was outside of his will and outside of his control. And the story followed the final few hours of his life in his home, uh, having one last party with his friends to say goodbye. And then he go, went up into his room and he laid on his bed where the poisons that he took slowly sort of slowed his heart to death. And as all stories of death are, it was an emotional story that in, really included these final intimate uh, moments here, inclu including photos. It almost felt, reading it, it almost felt voyeuristic in a way. But the printed story re received great accolades from the press and from the public there, uh, celebrating what he did, but I found it to be an extremely tragic story and ultimately a hopeless story. A story of a man who couldn't beat death, but still insisted that he would be the Lord of his own death as he tried to take it upon his own terms. And yet this man, even in his last hours, as man, uh, a man as brash as Ralph was, he wasn't equipped to be the Lord over his own death. For the first time, his friends said he was afraid and was described as being anxious. The only time his friends said he had ever shown that for the first time, he never felt or looked confident. The self-proclaimed man who always had a plan was scared of death when it ultimately came to him, even as he tried to take it into his own hands. And it just goes to show that the fear of death is inescapable. We cannot wrestle control over it, or we cannot have it bow down to our own wills. Instead, it inspires fear and anxiety. It might be a fear that we have of our own deaths as we get older and we age and we walk closer to the door that opens to the other side of eternity. Or we, we receive the news of disease or of cancer or of whatever else it might be. The fear that we, we might have, though, might not be of our own death, but the death of another. We see our loved ones approaching it and it breaks our heart. And undoubtedly, it comes with all sorts of questions. What will it mean for me? What will it mean for us when they're gone? How am I supposed to move on? Will the pain ever have a point where it will go away? And without divine intervention, then the fear which accompanies death is inescapable. We are weak lords. We are weak masters trying to wrestle some semblance of control over what has baffled the most profound philosophers, writers, and poets throughout the generations. But there is divine intervention. And we see it here. Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, shows himself to be a more than capable Lord and sovereign over all things, including over life and death itself. And he calls Jairus and he calls us to believe in that. And so our main point this morning is just simply believe in Jesus as the sovereign Lord even over death. 
Believe in Jesus as the sovereign Lord, even over death. We're just going to break that into two points here this morning. And the first one is believing in Jesus as the sovereign Lord. It has to start there. Jairus, we see, is desperate for his daughter to live. And in his desperation, he comes to Jesus. How desperate was he? Well, as a synagogue ruler, it's likely that he was part of of the religious establishment who were not friendly towards Jesus. Yet there's an undeniability that Jesus can heal. And Jairus is willing to cross lines and approach him with this sort of desperation. Now, was it faith in Jesus, real faith? We don't know. Perhaps it turned into a loving faith later at some point. But right now, though, he knew of his need for Jesus' healing for his daughter, and so he came to him to help. And it says here, you say, why, does he, why did he come? He said, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. That she may be made well and live. And Jesus agrees to go with him. And his going is an implicit promise from Jesus that, yes, she will live. And along the way is when the story of Jairus and of his daughter intersect with the story of this unwell woman then who came to Jesus in a covert manner and who touched his garments to be made well. And amid all the urgency of the situation here, this girl's life hangs in the balance. Jesus stops and focuses attention on her. Now once again, who was Jairus? He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a well-respected and influential man in the town. He was somebody who who had clout. He was a who's who in town. And who was this woman? A nobody. Anonymous. An anonymous woman with a chronic bleed that made her unclean. A woman restrained or estranged from religious society and the rest of the community. And we heard last week about what, what the woman learned about Jesus in this moment. That Jesus doesn't regard anyone with more or less attention based upon their worldly status. He doesn't have more time for the important. He doesn't interrupt the less important when someone who's more important uh, or someone higher on the social scale comes in. Um, Even here, in this urgent moment for an important man, Jesus still has time for her. And so let's consider this, though, from Jairus' perspective. What do you think he was thinking My daughter's dying. Why are we waiting? And for this woman, I called the ambulance. My daughter's in trouble. Sure, this woman has an issue. But come and help me like you said. Help my daughter. And then he gets the news. Don't bother with the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. It's too late. He didn't get there in time. What must have been going through his mind? I mean, certainly this crippling lament and grief. Do you also think anger and blame at the woman? Do you think maybe even a little bit at Jesus too? For pulling off to the side in that moment when he needed him? But Jesus takes this moment here and he turns it into a test of Jairus' faith. He hears the, the news and he ignores it doesn't matter not because he's uncaring but it's because he's the sovereign god who's standing in there in our midst verse 36 these beautiful words do not fear only believe believe in what believe in who he is the people who came from jairus's house referred to jesus as the teacher 
Is that all who he is? Jairus came to Jesus looking to him as being a healer. Is that everything? Is all he is to Jairus a healer and a teacher? But he's also a promise keeper. When he went along, he consented that he would make her well, or those words, and live. Do not fear, only believe. Believe that she will live, that I will make her live. Because you're asking far, something far too small from someone who is far greater and better than you might think. Believe in why I agreed to come to your home, to make her live. See, Jairus is dealing with the Almighty and the Sovereign God, the one who is in control over all things, the one who's, who upholds worlds and galaxies by his power, the one who rules over all things, the one through whom all things were made. He is the Word of God at creation. This is the Jesus who we come to, the same Jesus who always has been and always will be the eternal Son of God. And any lesser view of him and any lesser fullest thing sovereignty and rule and every divine privilege and power to its fullest, that's just not Jesus then. And as a sovereign Lord, he doesn't always follow our expectations of how life goes. In fact, he rarely does. And some of it is because he's not obligated to. But when his providence in certain moments, though, doesn't seem to go in our favor, he does, though, tell us to have faith and to not fear. Have faith in who he says he is. And faith that his sovereign will, even if it doesn't go as expected, that doesn't mean it's outside of his control or that he isn't good. His sovereignty and his goodness aren't pitted against each other. They aren't pitted against one another when things in life go against us. But we are living according to the promise of a sovereign God who keeps his promises. And Jesus wasn't turning away from his promise to Jairus even as, he, as she died. He called him to remember why he agreed to come with him in the first place. Do not fear, only believe. Your daughter will live. I've given you this promise. Will you trust me? See, that's how faith is formed. It's by responding to the promises of God. It continues to look to God and all of his promises coming to fruition in Jesus in all moments of life. In good moments, when some of us, though, are most prone to forget his promises because we're lulled into thinking that everything is just fine. But also in dark moments, when others of us conversely find ourselves in despair and are wondering if he's really there or if he's really faithful. Either way, either in the good or the bad, we need his promises before us over and over so that our faith will be built up. We need the Spirit to give us clear eyes that focus on Christ amid the distractions or amid the darkness. Faith just doesn't come out of nowhere. Faith is a gift of God, but it is also strengthened and tempered in the forges of life. Faith isn't formed like concrete, where you mix it with water and then allow it to cure and harden on its own. See, faith uh, and strengthening faith isn't instant. It's not without struggle. Faith isn't like concrete, like instant concrete there. Faith is like metal. It has to undergo heat to burn away its impurities and become more malleable or, or to become more valuable. It passes through the flames and it melts away the dross and is tempered in that furnace. 
And so as we pass through the forges of life's difficulties, it exposes our idols of control, that we want to be in control of how things go. And our distrusts rise up to the surface. Do I really trust God in this moment? We see that perhaps our faith isn't as strong or as pure as, as we thought it was. But as they're exposed, though, the Spirit works through the heat, works through the flames to not allow them to remain, but to burn them away and to cause them to melt away. And so that through the process then of being put through the forge, he fashions us and our faith more clearly and more purely. And that might be able to say, easy to say in theory. He works on us in the struggles of marriage, of want, the struggles of relationships, the struggles of when you've been wrongfully accused, but sometimes he passes us through some very dark times when the flames seem to burn hotter than ever. After all, here, Jairus lost a child. And yet still, Jesus is Lord and sovereign. And he tells Jairus, he tells us to believe and trust in his promise. His promise that he will make all things well. Even in the darkest times, in the cloudiest moments, when the dark fogs cling so close, he's still there. And sometimes we may only have the faint light of the moon that's barely visible through the clouds to light the path. Or only the sound of the fog horns cutting audibly through that mist. But focus on that, though. Focus on the promise, though, that even in those faint ways that are coming through of life and hope. Jesus is in the business of resuscitation. Not only resuscitation of life, but the resuscitation of our faith. And he does so by challenging us to believe in resurrection. Because if resurrection is real, then hope springs anew. Again, believe in Jesus as a sovereign Lord even over death. We got that part before about believing in Jesus... But second here, Jesus is the sovereign Lord over death. Those words he has, do not fear, only believe. Jairus, who am I? Am I more than a teacher? Am I more than a healer? I said your daughter will live. What do you think of that? What do you think of me? Why does death have to be the end? He overhears and he ignores their words, he rouses Jairus and he continues forward with his task and not with any less resolve than before. The situation may have changed here, but his approach hasn't changed one bit. He is marching forward with resolve to confront death. And he performs the most astounding miracle that we've seen yet here in the Gospel of Mark. He takes Jairus and his wife, he takes just a couple of his disciples and he enters into this little girl's room and he takes her by the hand and he calls her back to life with these gentle words, Talitha Kumi. Little girl, I say to you, arise. These gentle words, yet thundering words from the sovereign Son of God, which sound like cannon fire against the walls of death. And she is pulled from death and she's brought back to life into undeniably full life as even before she was ill. She gets out of bed and she walks, she eats. 
Jesus proves himself to be more than just a teacher or a healer. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the Lord over all things. The Lord over all things, seen and unseen. The Lord over illness. The Lord over life and even the Lord over death. It bows to him. It obeys his words. And Jesus causes it as our common enemy to tremble in fear. It's easy to miss because we focus on his beautiful words there, Talitha Kumi. But how does he also raise her from the dead? He touches her. He takes her by the hand. And this is where we see another of these parallels with the bleeding woman. The woman we saw last week was ritually unclean from Leviticus 15. But she reached out to Jesus in her state. Yet Jesus wasn't made unclean. Rather, she was restored from her uncleanness. Well, touching a dead body also made someone ritually unclean also. And yet Jesus touches her corpse as he took her hand. He touches the unclean. He didn't need to. And his power actually raises her from the dead. But he shows his willingness to become unclean in order to bring us back to life. In this simple moment... He provides a shadow of how he would conquer death. He would be willing to become unclean in order to save us. And that willingness carried him all the way to the cross where he became unclean in the, in the place of sinners as he bore our sins, our filth, our uncleanness. And he became unclean by carrying human sin, which human sin is the root cause of death. Why do people get old and die? Why does disease claim human life? Why does a death toll number in the tens of thousands from an earthquake? Because of, the, because of sin in the world, because of the fall, because death entered when the world when Adam sinned. And so that everyone ever since, even Adam and Eve themselves, have known death as the common human experience and have known death as the common enemy. But Jesus, though, God incarnate, tasted death on the cross as he took human sin so that sin would no longer have the power of death. And the proof of that, friends, is in the resurrection because death could not hold him. And he gives resurrection hope. Right here, right now, at this very moment, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he holds the keys to both life and death. He is the one who made all life. He is the one in whom life is found. New life, eternal life, life that stands triumphant over death. New life in Christ isn't just merely living a renewed life. It is literally new resurrection bodily life. And he calls life then to fill this little girl just as surely as he first called life into, into the void, into existence. What we see here is a glimpse of the resurrection life to come. It's a prototype here of the resurrection life that all who believe in him will experience. And admittedly, that's a strange concept. Resurrection life, does it seem to be good, too good to be true? I think there's something in all of us that at least wants to believe it or wants some form of it to be able to take comfort in. I mean, who doesn't want reunion with loved ones? to experience life in a way that defies our current experiences. Do not fear, only believe. 
It's the happy ending that all happy endings and stories point towards. I think about the joy that Jairus and his wife had when their daughter was raised from the dead, when she was pulled forth from death and reunited into life together with them. Think about what that scene must have been like. The wonder, the awe, the tears, the joy, and the hugs, everything with that. That beautiful moment is only a glimpse of the joy that will take place in the final resurrection. When all those who have died in Christ will be raised together in him and with one another and we will be reunited. The friends in Christ whom you have lost, brought back. The family reunions for those who are in Christ with parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. All those maybe even before you who you've never even had a chance to meet. Or meeting children who we've never had a chance to meet alive. All the joy at that day. All the joy there lasting into eternity. Because Jesus is the Lord of the living and he has crushed death by its sovereign power. It does require faith as we see death and as we watch our loved ones undergo death. We approach it ourselves but we come back to his words Do not fear, only believe. Do you understand what it means that Jesus is the Lord over death? It means triumph. A resurrection isn't just about what's ahead. Knowing Jesus has the power over death is also also about what's right now. Death isn't the end for those who are in Christ. Death is merely a footnote in the story and life everlasting is the end. Some of us might have a a personal fear of dying. We grow more and more apprehensive as we near the door. And some of us also have a fear of others dying and experiencing grief. Or we're we're maybe still even currently feeling despair over someone who has died. There's no need to live in fear of death. Life and faith in Jesus calls us out of that fear. There's though a difference between fear and grief. Grief and sorrow is natural when we consider the unnaturalness of death. I mean, have you ever considered that death is the most unnatural event, the most unnatural human experience that all of us face? It was never God's intent originally for humanity. He created us to live, not to die. Death is a curse of God's wrath that we have brought upon ourselves Death is an enemy. It is not to be glorified. It is cause for tears and for weeping. It's okay to grieve. Grief and sorrow isn't fear. And so friends, you can grieve over death, but you don't need to fear death. And nor do we grieve without hope. After all, all happy endings and stories always entail sorrow and despair before the glory breaks through in the end. So praise Jesus Christ the Lord and his power to conquer death and his willingness to reach down and to give us life. And for as glorious as this is, from this passage, though, we also see mockers of resurrection. As glorious, or as Jesus and Jairus arrive, the funeral party's already begun, complete with mourners who were wailing and who were crying loudly. And this wasn't only their family and friends. These were also professional mourners who were hired to do this. It might sound strange, hiring people to maybe come to your own funeral. 
But loud wailing and crying was a cultural way of expressing grief. And the more pronounced the grief, the greater the crying. The 12-year-old daughter of an important man dying, like here, we have here, that expected this sort of wide grief and wailing. Yet Jesus sends them out. He says, the child's not dead. She's sleeping. Now don't read too much into that. Jesus isn't commenting on places in between life and death. He's not talking about, we're not in, uh, intended to, re, to, to get some uh, deep meaning of the intermediate state there, but rather he's revealing what he was going to do. She hadn't succumbed to the finality of death and it had not had the final say. That's good news, right? This is Jesus who says this. But what do they do? They mock him. They laugh at the idea. They ridicule the idea of resurrection. This can't be. Death is the end. They had no concept for resurrection hope before them. Or perhaps they even had no interest or belief. Because they looked at life only as it is now. And so they laugh. And if you don't believe in resurrection, what else can you do? You're faced with the grimness and bleakness of life. And so you either find yourself in the deepest despair or you just laugh at the absurdity of it all. The mindset here still exists today. I mean, it's always been around. It's never left. And the most prevalent way that we see this here is living as if this life matters most. Why not live for the, the right now only, right? If this is all that matters, if this life is the only thing that we have, then eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Go out and follow your passions. Follow your heart which if you really understand your heart is the worst idea ever. Um, but that all sounds nice. But what is the worldview? What is the assumption bo uh, below it all? What is the underlying premise? It is that there is no resurrection. There is no continuity in life. And there's nothing better to look forward to. So grab all that you can right now and just simply live for the, th the things that we have here. And that form of living isn't compatible with living according to Jesus, with, coming, with living according to his hope. He came to give resurrection life, to give a fuller meaning of, and breadth to our lives that goes beyond our own desires. If resurrection is true, then how can you and I live? How could we live such a self-focused and petty life? Yet we long for the idea of resurrection, something deep down, longs for it some work for their legacies to endure for years afterwards perhaps i can make my memory linger further some try to cling to eternal life with some sort of technological hope that someday we will all be brought back to life in some sort of form why because maybe we can be quote unquote resurrected someday but ways out that don't embrace our full humanity and honestly in ways that sound pretty hopeless and at the heart of all these attempts to grasp at some form of life after death, it's not hope. It's fear. Fear that we will be gone. Fear that we won't be remembered. And the fear that the, all that we've done in our lives doesn't really matter. We fade into the void of obscurity like the countless others before us. But here's the thing. Resurrection changes all of that. Resurrection gives hope in our fears because Christ is the Lord of life and death and he has a hold on his people. And no one can wander too far, not even into the depths of the grave for the sovereign Lord to not pluck them out 
and bring them into life. Do not fear, only believe. What do we hold on to? We hold on to Christ Jesus. And when our faith is weak, we are given his promise yet again in ways that we can see, in ways that we can touch, in ways that we can taste. Bread and wine. He says that whenever we eat and drink, we receive the promise that we will surely be raised with him to feast with him in the resurrection. Feasting that death is brought to its end because of our Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered death. Praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, as we sang earlier this morning, no fear in life, no guilt in death for this is Christ in me. Because Jesus Christ has conquered death for us. He has opened the way to the enemy who has, who has uh, plagued us from the very beginning. Lord, we have hope. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live with any sort of guilt in death. And we praise you for that. We pray then that you would show us more, uh, reveal to us more of, in, even in our times of darkness and of sorrow, the times when we are, are tempted to think that this life is all that there is, the times that we are, are uh, in times of deep darkness here, that Jesus Christ and his light would shine through and that we would remember and live according to the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and that he gives resurrection life to us. As we come to the table here very shortly, as we come to the table where, where we have the, the hope set before us in ways that we can see, invigorate our faith and prepare our hearts as we come to receive Jesus once more. We pray this in his name. Amen.